Pranakasha live stream. Hey folks, this is Matt from Pranakasha Productions. Today we have none other than J.G. Hertzler, the one on Klingon, General Mortok. Who I met yeah. at, What's my name? Oh, that's right. Yeah, we met at Star Trek Las Vegas, and in proper uh, Klingon fashion, we met by a fist fight. <laughs> yeah. In fact, before, before the security guards dragged me away, we got a few pictures here. I <laughs> won that fight, by the way. It doesn't look like it. I don't think you've captured the entire brawl. See that? that he was like, he's not going to hit me. You know, he's just bluffing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See that right there, right oh. in the kisser. Oh man, and I couldn't. I couldn't get out of the way of that one. Down for the down for the punch. And we ended up drinking at Dick Fontaine's. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> So then, you know, and after that, you know, we were like total buddies after that. You know. Well, that's like how you fought in a foxhole together or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of hoping you would have your pirate hat on, but now we've got sort of a cowboy hat thing going here. My normal hat. I have the pirate hat. I'll put it back on. <laughs> Just uh, talk amongst yourselves. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> this is my Star Trek badge. And then if you look very closely, you will see that this is my Orville badge. And in fact, this looks like a Star Trek shirt, but it's actually the Orville Seth oh, Trek. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now I know who you are. Now I recognize you. The Seth Trek shirt, or is that made just for you? This was made by Justin Poole, a.k.a. JP. Whoops, not upside down. Very cool. Egotastic fun time. Now he's rebranded himself as the Orville Evangelist, talking the Orville. Well, it is wonderful. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. The only only misgiving about Orville of late, uh, uh, are they shooting more uh, episodes now? Yeah, they just just wrapped. So now they're editing it all, and then season three comes out in uh, early early March, I believe. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. But when when they took the guy, the two guys that were the helmsman, you know, the the Zulu and the Koenig, um, when they split them up, I said, "No, don't do that." They're like a great comedy team. Yeah, they did it. But uh, one's guy, one he went down to engineering or something, right? uh, now that's interesting because um, John Lamar, Lieutenant John Lamar in yeah. the Orville, he plays. He kind of plays like a goof off. Like this first question on the show is, "Do they have sodas?" Right? Yeah. And then it turns out halfway through the show that the guy's a genius, and he's or, just sort of play acting that he's that he's a goofball. Yeah. But get this. Yeah. He does the same thing in real life. He's actually a kick-ass classical pianist. I I went down to L.A. and and attended, personally attended a piano recital that he played in. And I went because, okay, so this Orville guy plays the piano. I want to see how good he is. Well, I went down there. It was excellent. It was super good. I was totally impressed. Where was it? It was in it was in L.A. And it was in it was like an inner city um, arts 
compound, actually. <laughs> the place was like, like a fortress, actually, because well, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that good of a neighborhood. It wasn't the LA Theater Center. No. Right. Um, off the top of my head, I can't pull it out. It, it, it was in the Latino district. And, oh, yeah, I know the, uh, not West Bank. Um, um, called the Historical District. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember, I've been there. I had people that live in buildings there, friends. Um, but that's a long time ago. I left L.A. in, 19, in 2006. Uh, well, so, it, was, it was actually, well, the neighborhood itself was a little dicey. Like, I mean, there was like homeless people outside and people actually taking a crap on the street right there. But once the, it was gated, so once you got in, then you were in this, it was like a fortress in some, I mean, really, there were walls like 15 feet high, you know, and then inside it was quite nice and turned out it was like this VIP party and there was like stars from the show there and everybody was dressed up trying to impress them, each other and I'm like, wow, what did I just drop <laughs> myself into? It's not a gated community, it's a walled community, huh? Yeah, so it was really fun. I, I got to meet his parents. Like I talked to his dad. Get this. Okay, we're getting off the subject already, which always happens. <laughs> so I come up to his dad, and his dad was like 82 or something. And I, and I said, um, so do you play piano? Like uh, how, did, how did Jay Lee get into piano playing? And his dad goes, well, I wanted him to play basketball. <laughs> Go talk to his mother. <laughs> so I went and talked to his mom for 15 minutes. <laughs> Oh, wow. It was great. It was really good. And he played super well. I mean, it was just excellent playing. It was, it's a, it, well, for one thing, there was no, um, there was no programs. So he just, he just off the cuff um, announced each piece that he did. And it was very heavy on Debussy. So there was probably like six pieces by Debussy that he played. And saying, then we're saying WC, and I'm thinking WC Fields wrote composition. No, no. <laughs> Claude WC, the French composer, right? <laughs> yeah, so that. Um, then he also played two pieces by Chopin, which were very virtuosic, and he played them very well, like really well. And he played it. What is it? Uh, um, the, entr- the intro to Orson Welles. Um, show that he ran for years on radio. Uh, what was it called? The Third Man? No. Um, bum, 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 was the beginning. Bum, 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 bum. It was choking, but I can't remember the name of the, uh, I can't remember the composition. Okay. Anyway. Well, the ones he played, I'm pretty sure, again, this is by memory, but I believe it was the Prelude in G minor. Oh, or how did it go? I think that's it. Where, how did it go? Well, how do I, how, you have a you have a viola, or did you say, or a, a cello? Cello. I can play piano, but I'm not that good, and I've never learned the piece. But all I can tell you, I, I know enough piano to to tell how if someone's good or not, and to be a critic. You know, I yeah. know I'm good enough to criticize people. If you know that one, right? <laughs> Anyways, it was super good. That not only his technique, but also he was so good. See, the, the, he was, it was a beautiful concept, the whole thing, because most of the people in the audience were basically just fans of him, like or, Orville fans, or just they knew him as an actor and as a movie producer. Wow. And they weren't really into classical music. But the way that he described each piece, he was able to describe the piece very 
correctly. Like he right. really described what the piece was about, but in such in the kind of terms that anybody could understand and relate to. Right. And then he would turn around and he'd sort of clown around a little bit, kind of how he does. I don't know if you know Jay Lee. I don't know him at all, but I love his character. His character in the show is very similar to his actual personality. So um, he would do that. And then, then he'd sit down and like in a quarter second, he'd turn into this concert pianist and just like nail it. And then he'd be done and then he'd get up and then he'd clown around a little more type of thing. But the thing that really got me besides that was the audience, even though they really weren't into classical music that much, they were glued to him the entire time. Like, for example, he did the, um, the Gollywog Cakewalk, which is a, sort of a famous WC piece, humorous piece. Halfway through, he was playing along, and he kind of looked up like this and looked at the audience. Immediately, everybody broke up. Like, they were on him the whole time, which yeah. amazed me, because most classical concerts, everybody's half asleep, you know, five minutes in. Unless it was Victor Borga or um, yeah. uh, what was the Marx Brothers who did it? Um, you know, all this. I'll play the Zindek finger. Uh, yeah. I can't remember the, which, which Marx brother was that? I can't. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you either. Um, anyway, <laughs> it was totally worth I, The whole reason why I flew down to L.A. was to see that, that concert. I would love to have seen that. I, I think it's fabulous. I hope he does concert tour. It's yeah. Really- well, the other thing he said was that this was the first time that he'd played a concert in 20 years. Wow. So they had a picture of him when he was 16 projected up on the wall. And I think, and he looks like he's probably about 36. So that when the last time he played was when he was 16 wow. like that, but it was great. He, he played super well. Where did he grow up? Um, I think he grew up in California somewhere. Hmm. Also, the other thing was it was all for memory. Which, um, well, when you're, <laughs> when you're 16, you can remember things. You well, know. but he was 36. Well, whatever he is, please. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. What's the difference? I know. I, even I think somebody who's sixteen or thirty-six is a kid. Yeah. <laughs> now that I'm in my fifties. <laughs> so anyway, so enough about the Orville. So, so oh, it's my of all the Star Trek, not the anime. I mean, I do some of the things on on uh, lower decks, but oh, you do. Uh, uh, yeah, but. The Orville uh, is my favorite live-action Star Trek now. I mean, for Mine part, too. I do, I do um, rants about uh, Picard, and uh, I, I would love to. I can't switch over, I don't think, without losing you. Um, but I'd love to play something for you. Um, the uh, what was the other discovery? Oh, I have the same problem with it. I, I I don't know what's going on, and yeah, I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, I love uh, in uh, in Picard. Uh, my favorite character, I think, is not Elrod. L something. Um, he, he speaks very little. He wears black all the time. He's a great sword master. Um, Elnor is his name. Elnor. Um, is that Orville? No, no, that's Picard. Yeah. That- only character I really like in Picard, except the, Picard. isn't that the kid, the Romulan kid with the long hair? Yes. Yeah. 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 He's one of my favorite characters too. The great fighter, and 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 he when he has something to say, it it's effective as opposed to the gobbledygook that others talk. I mean, 
in my in my opinion, and I'm not endearing myself in any way, shape, or form to uh, uh, to Picard. I love Patrick, you know, so he can do no wrong in my book. Okay. But but the writers, um, they, they, there's so many MacGuffins. There's so many uh, blind canyons. There's so many uh, things that references back to things that are obscure 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, you have to, anyway, it, it, it didn't obviously grab me. Right. Well, I think you probably, and um, since you're obviously into being a Klingon, since you, I mean, you were so inspired to be Martok that you wrote a book about it, right? So that character spoke to yeah. your soul, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I asked, uh, who was I talking to that, I don't know if I was talking to him at a convention or something, but um, uh, Leonard Nimoy said, oh, yeah, great. said things like uh, people were, one of the German, one of the, it was in Germany. One of the German press people said, well, everybody thinks, feels that uh, Deep Space Nine is so, so good because it's, it's the best written of any of the series. It is. I, I agree. And Leonard was sitting on the panel, and he was like four people down from me, and he said, "Okay, well, it's uh, very impressive that you feel that it's the best series ever written." Well, besides TOS, I mean, besides, the original I don't, track. There was no besides TOS. <laughs> and, uh, it was just he, he totally enjoyed that, like completely being forgotten, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, and on the first uh, first show, Leonard. I mean, Spock is he's it. He's it. There's 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 uh, there's so few characters in literature that can live across generations, live across languages and cultures, and identifiable by everyone exactly the same way. Right. You know, Spock, and uh, and everybody wants to be Spock. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Anyway. Yeah. Great. Well, I was thinking about that too. So I was thinking like who is the Spock for um next generation? And some people say well it's data, but you know what? I think actually the character that I that hits home like who is the one that like is the most the one that really sticks in my mind is actually Worf. Worf is like a, he's a cipher to me. I, uh, we, um, he has a, Michael has, he, it's like he has no wall around himself for, as a director. He's just delighted. But as Worf, he built this wall around himself that was almost impregnable in terms of what's going on in there. Uh-huh. Uh, it was very hard to read. And, yeah, I guess in that way, it's very Spock-like, yeah. Yeah, well, he kind of, well, he grew into that character. Like, I think Worf really blossomed when he was on Deep Space Nine, when he finally got a ponytail and not that stupid haircut that they gave him in the TNG, well, right? That's <laughs> when I came on DS9. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, that's the only chance I had a chance to work with him. Well, the really thing, was. I think what it is, is like, it's not just Worf, it's that... TNG was the one that really fleshed out the Klingons and turned them into like something real. 
And right. So, and that's, and so it kind of paved the way for your character, Martok, to, to yeah, do well, his Martok thing, right? Guy in the first two episodes that he was on, he was he was scheduled to be obliterated as a changeling um, and never heard from again. Right. But uh, Ira said, uh, you know, it it occurred to us after the fact that that uh, Martok off, offers Worf a possible friend because you have the same. You have the same, like, almost not function-like, but completely a function, but a different... You're two Klingons that can talk to each other, uh, Klingon to Klingon, right. as opposed to one conniving against the other. Uh, okay. To be friends. Um, and so they brought me back, and it was a, it was a uh, surprise to me. It was a surprise to them, and it, it worked out. Um, yeah. Well, what... What do you think? I mean, what is the appeal? There's some appeal about Klingons that people really dig. Like, there's something real about them. Like, I think it's, and I think it's like the Klingon heart, you know? Like, even though they're like these savages, there's something about them, the honor, and there's something real about them that people really, like, speaks to a lot of people. Except for the heart and the honor, uh, I think it's the Trump-like aspect of Klingons. Huh. Trump is successful because he just says outrageous shit all the time. Okay. He just, he just speaks clearly and to the often to the lowest common denominator. Okay. Uh, yeah. And whether it's true or not has nothing to do with it. And so I've always thought that Klingons are popular. Are, well, they're great for actors because you can operate almost all the time at the very edge of human behavior, you know, uh, and that is a very freeing thing. You don't have to have a censor, self-censor. And, um, but I would, I would reserve the heart and the sense of honor and the sense of sacrifice and this, you know, the glory. Yeah. They share that with Trump, but, uh, those other things are unique to Klingons. And I think that, um, I think it's it's one of the same reasons, except that we are completely, you know, manufactured. We fly uh, plywood ba- uh, spaceships. You know, it's a it's a movie. It's a TV show. Right. Are respected for the same kind of, of you know they operate at the extent. If you want to send in somebody, you know, let's send in the Navy. Let's send no. It's send in the Marines. You know. Right. Uh, so I, I think it has something to do with that. They'll take no quarter and, um, and the Klingons, if you need, uh, and, and, uh, what's it called? And an, an advanced force sending the Klingons, um, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's yeah. just, well, head. like, I, and I, I, like pop stars and they look like motorcycles and bikers, right? You know, they're like bikers and they yeah. did the new ones. No, no, no. Thank you. Nope. Right. right. Yeah, the discovery discovery really ticked off a lot of people with their version of Klingons. Oh Lord, yes. <laughs> you had you had rock star bikers there, you know, flying around the universe doing God knows what. But they you know, they were exciting to watch. And uh, plus, you had Christopher Plummer. <laughs> Christopher Plummer, who didn't have hair. Yeah. <laughs> but he still lifted 
It's Chris. It's Christopher freaking Plummer. Right. Thank you very much. You know, um, where did I see him? Also, saw- Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd is just, he's funny. I uh, i have no idea what Christopher Lloyd's doing. No, I don't think he does either. Nobody, uh, Christopher Lloyd is something, a piece of work. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, Christopher Plummer, didn't he, I saw him live with James Earl Jones when James Earl Jones did Othello at the Stratford Theater in, uh, in Connecticut. Oh. Stratford Shakespeare and uh, Christopher Plummer was Iago. Got to be the best Iago ever. Has to be. And um, and still there is that mystery of um, uh, well, there's, it, 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 the play's name is is Othello, and it's about the the, the arc of this man going from the deepest sense of honor and love to the deepest sense of hate and jealousy and rage and murder. And um, that's his arc. And uh, blame it on a woman. But um, but Iago, I mean, the, the famous acting thing was uh, the guy kept casting. Um, he was he a theater manager in 19th century, was doing Othello, and he played the lead. He played the title roles of everything. I'm the lead. And Yago kept getting the good reviews. Every Yago he brought in to play against, he said, said, well, screw it. I'll play Yago. I'll bring in somebody to play Othello. And sure enough, he got the reviews as Yago, which was, you know, that's the way it goes. (laughs) Angel Jones, I got to say, was the best Othello I've, well, besides my friend Ron, whom I directed in it, he was wonderful too. Um, But James Earl Jones made that transition in Act 3, Scene 3, uh, from the deepest love and puppy dog, you know, just ecstatic ex- uh, love for Desdemona to I hate that freaking bitch and I'm going to kill her in one scene. Wow. Actually, scene three, and Shakespeare did that by Yago. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, somebody was talking about doing. Um, uh, a hip hop. Uh, I forget what. Uh, I forget where I was going with that. A hip hop version of Shakespeare. Yeah, it was something something about Shakespeare. And uh, I think it's going on now. Um, somebody's. I can't remember. I heard it on the radio, and I said, "Well, well, if we figure out what it is, we'll throw it in the comment section. Send a link to it." Yeah. But yeah, so like. So the Klingons, the I'm thinking about your book, like in the opening chapter, which I was pretty sure it was a dream right off the bat. Mark, oh, right, right. It's extremely graphic. Like it's all about you know him scrubbing the floor and then getting in a fight, you know, and then there's he can feel his bones crushing and and everything's just extremely visceral. So, like, you get, like, a real heavy dose of the lower decks of what it's like to be in a Klingon ship and everything. So, I have a question. So, for, for those type of stuff, like, how closely did you guys collaborate in, in writing, those, writing this book? Like, uh, how did that work? Well, I did, uh, I did the first book 
<coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, it was about a 90 page treatment uh, that I did. Uh, a, a guy named uh, the, the um, oh Lord, I can't remember names. Um, he was in marketing uh, and his wife is in marketing in, at Paramount. And oh shit, he was a, he's a friend of mine. I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, he's written a couple of big coffee table books. Uh, okay. to, um, he asked me near the end of the, uh, uh, one of the seasons, he said, would you be interested in writing a, uh, uh, a book about Martok after the show ends? Um, a, a kind of Arthurian uh, tale. Right. And I said, I'd love it. Uh, I think, let me think. Yes. Uh, so having never written anything before that, besides, um, well, that was in late now. I'd written a few screenplays. I'd pitched several things to them. They didn't buy on everything, but I guess from my pitches, they asked me if you, well, here's a, here's an idea. So what Jeffrey did, Jeffrey's a brilliant writer and I right. can't, well, I don't see, his name more often because he's a wonderful writer. You're talking about Jeffrey Lang, right? Jeffrey Lang, yeah. 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 And uh, he came in and made every weak spot that I had in the writing uh, better. And he, he fixed it and he right. made strong point stronger. Right. So well, it's was, actually really well written. Like, for example, here's like chapter two. If you just, if you speak it aloud, it sounds great. It's like, the general woke. He shook his head, rubbed his eye, and tried to tear himself loose from the veil of dreams. Like most veteran campaigners, Martok had long ago mastered the ability to fall asleep within seconds and awaken clear-headed no matter how little he had rested. So to still feel the fog of his slumber was distressing. Too many soft bunks, he thought. Too much good food and rich wine. Too much song. Too much victory, he muttered aloud as he forced himself to sit up. That's good. It's beautiful. I think yeah. that's all. I think that's mostly Jeffrey, if not all Jeffrey, that little sequence right there. Yeah. Because, you know, I would, t I would tend to write it more. Um, oh, perhaps matter of factly, but I, I, he had a wonderful way of coloring it so that it's, uh, it evokes uh, an emotional response. Yeah. Well, the yeah. first, this was chapter two. This is after a really graphic chapter one, which basically just gets to like blood and guts and everything, you know, yeah. it's almost too much. I had, I put in a, um, a section that I did at home. I, I, I got so angry. I, I, you know, in fact, I'm sitting at a table right now that has the gouges in it from the chair that I broke on this old wooden table this old mahogany it's not mahogany walnut table that was from my grandmother's house okay so you really are a klingon in the same way that leonard demoy really is spock after all sounds I, like i think <laughs> this book is called confessions of a klingon linebacker because i've said to people klingons are basically a uh, race of linebackers they their purpose is to stop you from doing something bad <laughs> and in my case it's if you're on offense it's bad uh, 
So, but I was a defensive end uh, at in uh, I played for Bucknell University, and when oh, uh, I, I was um, a defensive end, and uh, my job was to stop the other person from moving. Clear wow. <laughs> thing. I didn't have any. I didn't have any uh, identifiable athletic skills. Huh. Were you heavier back then? Because you you seemed kind of actually kind of slim for a, a yeah, linebacker. I, I was an outside linebacker. I weighed my top weight was about two two twenty eight. That's about as heavy as I ever got. Oh, that's uh, not that heavy for someone you're t- as tall as you, right? Aren't you like six feet? Six two then at that point. But so that's was, still pretty slim. Yeah, it, yeah. I was never fat. I was never heavy, bulky, but I lifted a lot of weights back then and I okay. was in I was in great shape. Right now I just had MRIs on this shoulder because I totally screwed it up and i got a cortisone shot yesterday first one i've ever had in my shoulder and uh it suddenly is okay but you know everything is ripped apart inside but it gives it a chance to heal but i i'm never going to be able to pump iron again don't have the my muscles are no longer attached in certain places um but uh, I've always thought of myself as a skinny guy. I mean, I write about it in here. I do have a bad left eye, amblyopia. <laughs> Just yeah. like Martok then. Well, yeah. They wanted, when they brought me back, he, uh, Iris said, we want to put you, uh, we want to scar you up a lot for uh, spending all that time with the uh, Hadar prison ship. Right. And I, uh, she said, so we're going to cover up your right eye and put some scar. I said, no, 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 Ira, you can't. I, I'll 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 run over things like Ferengis and walk doorways because I can't see out of my left eye. Um, so they changed it to this eye. Thank goodness. <laughs> but um, I forget why I was going there. But you asked me something very uh, yeah. So you you you've always been thin and muscular. Oh well, I was I was an outside uh, linebacker and um, I. My job was to stop the person, and I didn't care how I did it. Uh, in fact, there was one time that I've always felt awful about this all these years later. This is 1970, for instance. Hey, I was four years old. I was shut <laughs> up. I was I was uh, I was running across the uh, pursuing the other way. It was a sweep around the other side of the line, so I had to take a diagonal. And that's the training. Take the diagonal, and if you if nobody else gets him, you'll get him at the at the apex of that uh, triangle. So I was running there, and there was the tight end that usually played against me, uh, opposite me. He had made a block downfield on somebody else, and he was on all fours. He was about six foot six or seven, but he was thin, and he had this long neck because his helmet was sticking out there. And I was running full speed that way, and I saw him there like a. It was like a Christmas goose. And I said, I I just wound up with my left arm and hit that side of his helmet as hard as I could with, you know, I have a pad uh, or hand pads and it knocked him out of the game. Hmm. And I had no business doing that. It was, I, and I've, I've, I've even looked up his name to find out who he was to write to him and tell, but I still haven't done it. They had a famous coach named Tubby Raymond who had coached at Delaware for 32 years, I think. And uh, 
they never lost. They, you know, they some if they played in North Carolina or things like that, they would. But in our league, they never lost. And um, I've always felt terrible about that. But that was the the mental attitude at the time was to stop this person, the enemy. Right. But it's like yeah. he was there with his hands up, surrendering, you know? Okay. So that was around, so when that happened, the Vietnam War was happening. Yeah. Like, did you, did you, did you do any, did you fight in Vietnam or known people that were, that served or? Well, oh, I didn't serve because I was, uh, many things. My dad was in the Air Force. Okay. He, had a, he was 100% disabled from working on the, uh, the planes that flew through the atomic clouds uh, in Alamogordo when they were uh, testing, uh, atomic testing. And so he caught a very strange thing. So he was 100% disabled. I was the only son, and I had college deferment uh, until 72. Okay. And then uh, the height of the draft was 68 for the offensive, which happened in, I guess, April of... um, of uh, 68. Um, and that's the year we, we lost f- probably 30,000 soldiers uh, and probably 100,000 uh, Vietnamese, Viet Cong and, and North Vietnamese regulars. Um, but no, I did not serve. I, I have friends that never came back. Mm-hmm. I have friends in college that never got drafted after college and they didn't come back. Uh, uh, so it's very much a part of my psyche, Okay, but it's not my experience. How about, I mean, you probably have friends that did come back, but they were totally messed up, right? Yeah. The guy, there was a guy named Eddie Jones who was, he came back and he was two years older than me, but he was uh, in the same class because he had been drafted Oh, no, he was two classes behind me, but the same age because he had been drafted on his way to college. He went there and served and in the infantry. And he had uh, longish triangular scars on his backbone. And every Vietnam vet that I have known always carried a, a stack of Polaroid pictures from the war. And it was about that you know that many cards with a rubber band and that was you know uh they never talked about it uh he was a paternity brother of mine and we would get loaded a a couple uh, you know eddie and he was he played defensive tackle next to me uh for two years um but he said i said how did you get that scar and he said well i was walking point and a kid dropped out of a tree with a bayonet on his gun and he stabbed me in the back, but he hit square in my backbone on the vertebrae and he wasn't strong enough to push the thing through. So I turned around and killed him. Uh, you know, he's sitting next to me um, with, a, with a world of experience that I will never understand. Right. Uh, by by its very nature, and um, and he wasn't. Of course, he's not the only one. Uh, I had many, but um, it's uh, it was a it was a bizarre bizarre time in American history, as we are experiencing once again right, right now. 
Well, I have a feeling that any major war really was that horrific. Well, I, just, I can't imagine the entire nation in, yeah. in 1943, 42, nobody had a idea what was going to happen. Everybody must have been, I mean, talk about the war effort. Everybody went out and, uh, and volunteered and, and you didn't know because this man was powerful and nuts over there in Germany and yeah. just absorbing Europe, unstoppable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine you drew from that when you, when you were an actor, especially as a Klingon, like, for example, like, did you do any kind of method acting or what was your, how do you approach acting? Uh, I think the best example of how I approach acting is, is uh, when I auditioned for the role, I, uh, I, uh, um, I didn't want to, I, I said, oh, shit, what's going on? I'd have, to wear, I'd have to wear thousands of pounds of makeup and grunt. I said, what am I going to do with that? So I said, I know, I'll just make him the most contemplative, conspiratorial, quiet uh, Klingon ever. So I did it. I read the part that way. And they said, back of the room, they said, um, John, do you know what a Klingon is? <laughs> Because you did the Shakespeare version, right? <laughs> it was Richard II. <laughs> well, no, it was well. It was politically done. No, I, um, I, uh, I said, oh, let me guess. You want something aggressive, uh, intolerably angry, vitriolic, aggressive, hateful, uh, violent. Is that, what you, is that what you're saying? And there was a pause. They, they said, um... Yes. <laughs> so I picked up, uh, there was a chair and it was one of those old chairs in the Thalberg building. I think it was the writer's building was the Thalberg building, I think, on Paramount. And the old folding chairs had a slanted, the, the, the foot went down, uh, the leg went down on one side and there was a, a rubber cover. But right. it the rubber cover off, there's a point. It's like a knife point. So I picked up the chair. I didn't think about that. I, I, just, I picked up the chair that was in front of me, and I threw it into the wall, um, and it stuck because that stuck point went right into the wall and threw the plaster into the lathe. You know, those old buildings. Oh, wow. My wall, it's plaster over lathing. Right. And uh, it stood there, and I also ripped part of my thumbnail off of my right finger, right right hand so i was bleeding as well uh, uh and i would gesture madly and the blood would go uh, was it pink or was it red it was red okay until i got the roll then it turned <laughs> um, but, uh, um, so at the end they were they just sort of there was silence and they said thank you <laughs> and i turned and left but that pretty much expresses the way I played linebacker, the way I uh, have, have banged my head against walls for the last 50 years, um, and the way I've certainly played uh, uh, Mark Talk, although he's sometimes known as the more sensitive guy. But um, we have our moments. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about the book you're reading, you're writing. 
It's like this thick. Yeah, it's well, bread. It's about three hundred feet. It's about three hundred pages. In actuality, I won't. You know, it's I've only printed on one side because so, I don't like to write notes on two sides. Um, so I've just got my last edit done. Okay. Oh, like the, that's the the hope. It's the last edit. Okay. But it 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 is sort of. I do a one man show of Mark Twain, and oh, I call, cool. I call it Mark Twain Unplugged. And because I talk about politics. And you wrote it? Uh, well, it's mostly Mark Twain stuff, but I have it interlaced with my observations on life today and wow. how they fit in with some of what Mark Twain was talking about back then. It was can way. You pu- can you pull anything out? Like, can you, can you, can you do, give us a little sample of it or? Well, just a very little one. I, um, I, uh, the thing about politicians are they're, they're, they're a lot like diapers. They, they need to be changed frequently <laughs> and for the same reason, uh, <laughs> which I've always enjoyed. A very short one, but he had so many of those. Yeah, Mark Twain was a genius. It's so oh, good. Genius. Um, genius. And, uh, yeah, I talk about... He wrote a story about the uh, the black woman who lived, who took care of him as a child when he went back to the house, and he, he was having a lo- he had a long conversation with her on the front porch about what her life has been like. You know, there's those moments, and there's life on the Mississippi. There's a description of sail- of uh, river boating on the Mississippi at dawn in the morning, and he describes the scene that is phenomenal about uh, it's it's the calm, it's the one or two birds starting up, it grows into a symphony and uh, the, the sun the sunrise happens it's it's like a symphony it's like a mini right. overture okay. uh, and, but I also you know I also talk about um, well, you know, one of the things I, I'd love to see all the ladies sitting out there and the gorgeous pastels and and um, clothing and then you have to you're sort of interspersed among these brown and black stumps of people and men in brown suits and black suits that's about it that's all they have and uh i said that but uh, and uh, there's you are just beautiful and uh, one of the reasons i wear white suits is it keeps me from keeps me skinny you, you know you can't eat anything if you have a white suit on <laughs> You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I just—he was a man for all time. I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I'm an Ambrose Bierce fan, you know, and a, a Bret Hart fan, but nobody was. Nobody had the. It's like John. Um, What's a great comedian? John, not Colbert, but the guy who started Colbert, John. Uh, uh, John Stewart? John Stewart, yeah. John Leibowitz, John Stewart. Uh, his, his, his observation. And uh, what's the other guy that um, he's a little bitter, a little more bitter? Mark, I don't think Mark Twain ever really got bitter. I tell a long thing about getting a haircut. It's one of my favorite pieces called About Barbers. And uh, it's this loving portrait of every other sentence is, and as it always happens, you know, the guy beat me by a step into the barbershop. We left 
they left no chairs empty, so I had to sit in the in the lounge and wait for them, the next one to finish. And that was a race because <laughs> I just hoped that the guy that was the worst barber didn't finish first. So right. I I don't have the temerity of spirit to look a barber in the eye. Saying, please no. For the next guy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's Did you read his um his Adam and Eve story? I have done his Adam and Eve story. One oh, of yeah. things I ever did on television. It was for Maryland Public Broadcasting. And it was with a woman named Joy Hawkins, who was also... Joy Hawkins was the tiger girl on Dean Martin's piano on the Dean Martin show. And she played Eve. And I played Adam in a, in a set of white leotards. I looked ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, I, I've never seen it. Uh, I, I have to find that because I would love to have that about naming everything. And, and uh, yeah, anyway, I've never read it, though, except for that adaptation. Yeah, it's good, of course. It's Mark Twain, so it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Well, I, I suppose I should talk about Axenar too. So, I was I just did a video, I did a interview with Alec Alec Peters. We actually did two interviews, and so, and he was telling me that you're friends with him. And of course, I also saw there was a very good documentary that's out there where that where they interview all the actors in Axenar and everybody's approach to it and everything. So, I'd be interesting to see. Um, how you feel about that character and how you got involved in it. And I love it. I, I keep talking to Alec though, cause he's, he's, um, we had the, first, the prelude to Axanar, uh, was, uh, presented to me as, uh, you know, it's a fan film, but I went, we shot at the old, not Charlie Chaplin, was it Charlie Chaplin Studios on Sunset Boulevard, uh, on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard? Oh, interesting. Okay. It might have been one time Zotrope. I, I can't, that was um, uh, the big Italian. Uh, uh, what am I trying to think of? Um, uh, he did uh, Godfather. Um, oh, Marlon Brando? No, not. No, the, the director uh, uh, who did Godfather, the uh, Jesus Christ. His daughter is also a filmmaker. Anyway, um, I went in that day. They were only going to shoot for the weekend for my right. stuff. And it was all on a green screen. Yeah, it's all on yeah. a green screen. But, but you walk yeah. in and you say, you look around, you see four green screens up. You see three tracks being lined, laying down. Uh, with four ca- with three cameras on them, uh, and you look around and you say, "Oh!" And the people that are the heads of the departments were everybody from Deep Space Nine. Uh, and I said, "Oh, this isn't a fan film. <laughs> this is the real thing." Yeah. And I had read the uh, script and I said, "Oh, this will never work." You got a bunch of people sitting around talking heads uh, uh, about something that happened before. Right. Uh, and he said, well, uh, Alex said, well, you know, um, Rich, Rich, uh, uh, Rich, what's Richard's last name? He, he was Starbuck. Um, 
Yeah. No, he wasn't Starbuck. He was, um, but Richard Hatch. Richard Hatch. But he wasn't Starbuck, but he was Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, um, uh, Starbuck was the woman, right? Um, well, and then Katie Sackhoff played Starbuck in the reboot. But yeah. then I can't remember the guy. The original Starbuck had a cigar and he was all cool. I can't remember the actor's name, but it wasn't Richard Hatch. Well, anyway, but, yeah. Richard Hatch was his uh, mentor and... Um, you know, Richard Hatch always looked like he was like 32 years old and he was already 70, you know. Uh, oh, wow. He's that old. I didn't know that. Wow. He's passed away now. Right. But he was, he was up there. Uh, oh. He died in the brouhaha uh, after we made it and then CBS got all bumped out of shape. And right. in that, I believe Richard passed right. away. Uh, but... Um, Richard, but Alex said, well, Richard Hatch thinks it's pretty good. I said, wow, what does Richard Hatch know? <laughs> Richard Hatch is perhaps, was perhaps one of the nicest people I ever met. And uh, right. he always was trying to get that uh, reboot of um, Battlestar. Up. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh. Oh, yeah. And I said, Richard, they won't give you the rights why are you fighting this battle? Huh. Put that effort into some other pro. You know, just don't name it uh, Battlestar. You know, name it something else. And interesting. Um, but he was so wedded to that. Really? So did and did he like the final reboot? Because it is, of course, way different than the original show. It's much darker. He was on it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how he felt about, about it. I, I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think we have any problem with it because he wasn't a huge. He never attacked people or product, certainly like I do. Uh, uh, so I, I think he was, I think he was sanguine about it. Um, but I know he wanted, it was a dream of his to, to reboot it. And he tried it for years. And did he want to direct it or did he want to write it or? Yeah. Or produce, yeah. Um, <laughs> he did a thing called Magellan Wars that I did for him too, and that was the pilot. He hoped to do a. He took my advice and did, did a bit of a pilot for a different show, but it, nobody picked it up. Um, but it was fun. We shot out in. Uh, in fact, I had half a half a crosswing uh, starfighter in my backyard for like several years because oh, cool. I lived out in the boonies and. Um, uh, and Richard said, can you put this in your yard? Because I, I, I just can't. I said, sure. It won't fit in my garage, you know. <laughs> I can pick it up. Uh, I'll pick it up in a, a few months. It was like four years later. You know, it was five years. I said, uh, Richard, I'm selling the house. I, I, I hate to include the Starfighter, uh, you know, in the price. I said, I'll get it. Oh, that's right. That's great. Well, that's amazing. So, so Richard got, obviously, he got to be the Klingon in Axanar. And, and you got to be a Starfleet officer. Right. He was probably the best Klingon I've ever seen. He was, was good in that role. Yeah. Karn, old Karn. One of my last lines is in this one we're about to shoot. He says, he says, uh, uh, Travis, who my love is crusty old Texas, uh, uh, old school pilot, star pilot. And he, he said, yeah, I'll tell you something. I, I, I get, I, it, 
I would love to have seen the look on Carr's face when he he looks over and he sees a a, a, a star a Starfleet photon torpedo materializing on his own damn bridge. <laughs> I would have paid money to see that. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay, that's wild. Well, that's cool. So, like, so I, we probably should wrap up pretty soon. But like, you've got this giant book that you're doing. I guess that's a big project. It's my pandemic. It was the pandemic project. Okay. The reason I'm writing it was because, as I did, I say this already that um, my daughter was born when I was 49, almost 50. Oh wow! And, and I was um, so. This book is about the first 50 years of my life before she arrived. Okay. To be able to some I, better idea of her father, oh. at least in his own mind. <laughs> um, so I write about all the family that she never met, you know, my family. Okay. Uh, met my mother, uh, knew my mother for a year before my mom died. And my dad was already gone. Her grandmother was gone. Um, uh, I wanted her to know who we where from whence she comes. And, um, and a little bit about my career up to, up to when I was basically when I was, uh, uh, 50. Okay. Almost all of Star Trek happened within that period of time. And then 25 years, I was, I've, I've been doing <laughs> conventions. Wow. So uh, it's been a ride. But she knows that part of my life. She didn't really know. We lived in Morocco and Germany and uh, uh, all the SAC bases in the country. And uh, um, so, and I worked man. With, Huh? That's strate- that's like the UK Strategic Air Command, right? Yes. Yeah. Not UK. Oh, US. Mer- US. Oh, okay. Interesting. Was SAC. Uh, <clears throat> there are big bases in Lincoln, Nebraska, and one we lived in El Paso, Texas. There's one down there, and okay. uh, yeah, that was the. I don't think the Strategic Air Command. Jimmy Stewart did a movie called Strategic Air Command about the Strategic Air Command. Uh-huh. Uh, but I don't think it still exists. I think it's been. So all we got is Dr. Strange lab now. (laughs) (laughs) A better actor to ride the bomb down. Oh man. Yeah. And that actually had James Earl Jones in it. I think that was one of his first theater. Is that right? right? He was in it. Yeah. He was a, he was one of the pilots. Oh, fabulous! On the yeah. B on the B fifty two, yeah. Oh, I have to go back and look at it then. Yeah. Yep. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's great. So you got that. So you're doing conventions. You got the book, and then you said you were, are you still doing Shakespeare? Uh, no, no, not unless it's something I've already done because I. I, you know, I can't remember. I've spent my life memorizing literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of words in right order, usually. Uh, uh, And I just, there's no space to hold on to those words anymore. It's like, it's the old age, you know, I'm over, I'm 71 now. They just want to go. You just can't talk to them. I mean, they go out there and you say, "Mm, ah. Um, but I, uh, 
I did a lot of leads in Shakespeare and uh, I memorized all those words. And for the life of me, I don't know how I did it because yeah. they're incredible words. And I didn't either, never did them justice because. Yeah. Well, nobody ever feels like they do Shakespeare justice, right? It's always yeah. like some, there's always some, some new level that you have to explore. Well, Patrick Stewart said, yeah, uh, he did a, Patrick Stewart set up a, a workshop that happened on the Paramount lot eventually. Right. And there was like 15 of us that got to be part of it. Not, uh-huh. nobody, correct, but from all the other shows that were there, they, he brought people in and his purpose was to create a, a Shakespeare company in LA that was. Star run, Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not run by Star Trek, but run by Patrick Stewart who could bring all of his RADA experience and national Shakespeare theater experience to LA. Anyway, uh, he, then he started working, making $12 million a picture for a uh, Star Trek. X-Men. X-Men. Yeah. yeah. About it. I have no, no more, uh, I'm out of time. Um, <laughs> uh, but he said, when you do it right, when you do Shakespeare right, you know the audience is literally breathing with you. And you can feel it when they're there. A hesitant breath. They hesitate. You, you, you rumble on. They rumble on with you. When that's happening, you're doing it right. And there's so many things you have to keep track of when you're doing Shakespeare that it gives you, if you successfully take care of all of them, I mean, tension and rhythm and assonance and the poetry and then the reality, the truth and the grace of Shakespeare. Right. Um, he said, you know, give yourself brain fever. Right. <laughs> what he said, you know, give yourself brain fever, John. Right. Uh, <laughs> was, was Armin Shimmerman in on, in on this troop? No. No, he was not in that 15 people. I'll tell you who, James Avery was one. But here's another thing. Um, Patrick couldn't always be there. And when he would, he would replace himself with somebody. And this one day, Ben King, Sir Ben Kingsley comes in and teaches. Okay. <laughs> Not too shabby. Yeah. Uh, it was a great gift. What a time for me. And you know, a, kid, uh, a kid at 50 or a kid at 40, a kid in his 30s, I guess. Um, 40s. 40s on it. Yeah, 40s. Um, I didn't know it at the time. You know, I, I didn't know how lucky I was. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I hopefully wasn't an asshole, but I really didn't. You know, there's no way to, uh, you know, there's no way to balance it. Having not gone to Juilliard or ACT, uh, although I worked there as an actor or um, uh, Juilliard or Harvard or any place such as that, I didn't. I didn't have the training, so I didn't know. So how did you get in on this? Did you, I mean, how did you break in if you didn't? We haven't actually heard that. The Folger Theater, the Folger Shakespeare Theater in D.C. Folger Coffee? No, uh, no. <laughs> it, might Folger, it might have been the Folger Fortune. I don't know for a fact. I'd have to look that up. But um, the uh, it's a library that's right behind the... Uh, it's on East Capitol Street, right behind the Capitol, uh, real close to the Library of Congress. But the Folger Shakespeare Library goes like okay. 12 in the basement. 
There's 12 floors of rare books. They have right. more. They have more first folios of Shakespeare than the British Museum has. Okay, so uh, you just so you just woke up one day and said, "I want to do Shakespeare," or like, how did you ever get involved in it? I auditioned, and uh, the first thing that happened, I, I was playing a fop in the Tempest. Not many, not many words, and also the bosun hanging from a rope ladder, chilling me heart. But I was a big guy for the theater. I was a big so they. So I got work. And then a guy left the show because he was uh, in his 60s and he said, I can't do this. And I fit the costume. So I moved up. I became the king on board the uh, ship in the Tempest. And that was, and then I did like four more Shakespeare's in that first half of that decade. Uh, and I learned by doing, and I learned by talking with people that you will have never heard of. Okay. Again, uh, Al, Al. Oh, God, I can't think of his name, but actors that were amazing actors that never did any, maybe little tiny things on television. So you okay. nobody even, um, but they all had one guy, he had to pass me a scroll on stage in one show. In uh, it was Richard the Third, and and he, he he would head this speech while he was passing me the scroll of names, and he would do this flamboyant gesture of passing me the scroll, and each time he would he would bring it out and take it away, but I would have started reaching for it. <laughs> <laughs> he made a six course meal out of you know uh, uh, a cucumber salad, uh, it was, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I, 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 I adored these people. I, and, and, uh, and I've been, yeah, as I say, I've been very lucky, unbelievably lucky. And, um, so. Oh, that's my great. Mother, mother was a Latin teacher. Oh, people ask me, how did you get into the first Klingon role? How did you, uh, and how did you break into, uh, theater and, and television? And I said, well, uh, I was auditioning early for a CD-ROM that Jonathan Frakes was directing. Okay. For that, called Klingon. Okay. And I've never done a Klingon before. <laughs> so I was reading, I was looking at the script, and it it, in the middle of it, it had this long sequence in Klingon. And I said, oh, Christ, I have no idea how these words are pronounced. I've never seen them. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to make a fool of myself. What can I do? What can I do? I said, oh, speaking in a foreign language. I'll just use a, a different language. Um, let's see, uh, 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 French? No, it sounds, it, it sounds like French. Um, German? I don't know enough German. Uh, Latin! I know Latin because my mother was a Latin teacher. Wow. And so I took all this Latin where I memorized speeches from Cicero and Pliny. Interesting. And all these people. And uh, I, I just broke into uh, um, uh, in, in Sonatas uh, Pike Intelligent Imovero Coesque Tantum Abuteri Catalina Patientia Nostra Cromatinum No Saludet. You know, I, right. I, and, and at, at the, when I was done, Frank said, uh, 
he was laughing. He said, you know, nobody's ever auditioned. It might be hard to believe, but nobody's ever auditioned with Latin before for me. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I never took Latin, but I took Sanskrit in college, oh, wow. which is kind of the Indian version of Latin, yeah. you know, and you would, you take it for the same reason. Like you want to be able to like read these ancient texts, oh, and pick it apart and actually understand all the nuances of what's yeah. going on there. So it's like, so I can kind of relate to that. And it's similar, like it has nominal declension and all that kind of same type of oh, stuff. It's clear, I, I've said yeah. for you, if anybody wants to learn English, learn Latin, how to conjugate a verb and decline a noun. Yeah. We don't that. You know, nobody yeah. knows why you say the conditional plural. If, 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 if he wanted me to do it, it, well, no. If I were in his place, instead of if I was in his place. Right. Conditional, you know. That kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Wow, that's wild. Well, we should probably wrap it up. We've been going at it for a while. So any parting shots? I think you should show us your book. We, did, we talked about the book, but you didn't actually show us the book. You have it like on the uh, yeah, well, I, uh, let me see. Confessions of a Klingon. Confessions of a Klingon, Klingon linebacker. All right. I began to write this story in the time of the great pandemic of 2020, the worst pandemic since 1917. I also writing in the midst of the primaries for the presidential election of 2020, the most important presidential election also since 1917 when we entered World War One, and the flu pandemic began killing. 50 million people around the world. And so, if I get distracted from time to time, venturing off into fascinating, though frustrating canyons of memory, please forgive me. These are such times as try men's souls, and my soul is profoundly on trial. This is great. You know what? It sounds great when you read it. Are you going to like, you ought to do the audio book of it. You know, somebody said that yet a couple of days ago. I think it was uh, Chevy, my better half. Yeah. And I said, you know, I hadn't. I was so involved in writing it. Of course, I should read it because yeah, if, it sounded know, great. Yeah, and like these days, like on Amazon, you can do you can self publish on Amazon. I know. People, wanna, yeah, people told me about that, and uh, as I say, where I'm at, I've got I've got like six folders full of photographs that I have to know where I put them in, you know, insert them into two sections in the book. And, uh, right. but it's both my life with my family and, and another thing going on is a thousand, my motivation for theater was a thousand lives in the time of one. Uh -huh. and, um, that was my goal. And I, I think I've done it. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Really. We just, we just kind of scratched the surface today but uh we could go on and on so I, I hope you're planning to do star trek las vegas 2022 right i you know i honestly i doubt if i'll ever do another um uh never uh, another um convention with creation really yeah, yeah i it, it's a long and painful story but i uh, uh i don't think that's ever going to happen i'll huh. still be doing them you know in other places but um, but not with those guys. And I love Adam. I love Adam. Um, uh, they've been very good to me over the years. But there was an incident, and I and I really can't. I don't even talk about it in there because it didn't happen before nineteen fifty before right. uh, uh, nineteen ninety nine. Now this was the incident that was previous to your and my incident, right? 
I don't know. I, I, remember, like, okay, remember when I was like, I was pretend, like you were messing around with this one girl I knew, lady I knew, and then I jumped in and pretended I was her boyfriend and I was like in your face. And then yeah, I didn't no, let up, and then you were like, somebody get this guy out of here. <laughs> and then I came back five minutes later, I was like, that was pretty good acting, huh? You were scared of me, weren't you? <laughs> I was. I was uh, frightened. Uh, the, um, something happened back in 1919. This was last year, right? Yeah, in August, a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah I loved. No, I loved. I, the only reason I wore that big old hat was because they didn't uh, announce me. They didn't. Uh, nobody knew I was going to be there. So okay. I said, "Well, I'm going to wear a giant pirate's hat with a huge white plume, panache." Yeah. Uh, and uh, people, they can say, see that white plume over there? That's where he is. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe that's what, what irked you. But the thing, I, I haven't been to many Star Trek conventions, to tell you the truth. I don't, that was my second one ever, believe it or not. But I, I spent the entire time in that vendor room because all, there were so many Star Trek actors in there. Everybody had their table or their booth. And you and, could talk. And there's very few lines, so you could. Right. I did exactly. I was like, I'm going to go talk to every one of them. Right, I know. You know I, and then it was great, so I loved it. You know, I, well, I don't get to see those guys ever. You know, yeah. So we do it too. I mean, we we we're like old friends. Um, you know what it reminded me of? It, it was like some old school market, you know, marketplace. You know, where everybody's selling their fruits and vegetables and all their stuff. It was exactly. the same type of energy, and I totally loved that. Yeah. You know? In fact, they should do that with little, like, narrow hallways and tents set up uh, with lots of pots and pans. Yeah. Which you can rattle as you go in and out. <laughs> well, I already have an idea. Actually, I already hatched an idea where I want to have my own table next year for my, my show. Because I found out it was, like, 650 bucks, And I'm like, I can pay for that. And then, but now I'm like, well, I don't have any star power. So I'm going to, like, think of all these gimmicks I can do to try and grab grab people's attention you know like play the cello or like do poetry oh, readings or whatever you know oh you have it you have it uh yeah the cello is so haunting it's um you should be able to do like uh supernatural things you can the- you can yeah. Yeah. i actually did something like that that's like well my my company is called pranakasha productions right and it's actually i I made a CD a long time ago, which is basically a, a, an, an ohm type of sound yeah. that I made using a cello. I overdubbed like a jillion tracks of this cello, right. and it makes this sound that's ohm kind of a sound. It sounds kind of like, it sounds a little bit like a, like a B-17 flying over <laughs> and like, you know, some giant turbine. But when you listen to it, you start to hear like all this other stuff in it after a while. But it all came from a cello. And it's really funny that now, so many years later, like cello is like a big part of my brand now. And I wasn't planning that to be that way. But then still with Pranakasha Productions, it's all from that. It's really interesting. You really should, you really should have your, uh, offer some accompaniment to your cello. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Well, it's, great. it's been great talking to you. So, I mean, and uh, all the best, of course. And then, so if we don't see you, I hope I see you, maybe somehow I'll see you at Star Trek Las Vegas, but if I'll not... I'll we'll cross again. There is time. Will. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to it. I've had a wonderful time too. Of course, 
I don't think it gets any better than talking about oneself. <laughs> That's true. We can always do another Zoom call. And then, of course, I'm looking forward to seeing you on Axonar again. That'll be neat. You got a shoot coming up in November, right? Yeah, it's in November. And, uh, and uh, although I can't tell you what I did, but I might make another appearance on, uh, on Lower Decks. Which, Great. Do you, do you know about Gorky's Lower Depths? You know, the depths. Yeah, there's a famous, it is a famous play by Gorky about the, lo the lower depths, the low lifes along the streets in Moscow. How interesting. It, it's called, it's, a, it's, anyway, and when I first heard Lower Decks, I said, oh, I wonder if it's a takeoff on Lower Depths. Um, anyway, I think it is, actually. Do you get to interact with Mike McMahon very much? No, uh, Brad uh, Winter. Is it Brad? Uh, oh, I, I just, I can't think of his name. Brad. Anyway, Brad and Benjamin. Um, I can't think of the other names. Uh, uh, and I can't talk too much about it because. Um, NDAs. Yeah. yeah. So that means, that, so you've, they're already shooting the third season? They're already working on yeah, it? I think oh, so. Interesting. Wow. The only that is because there's a three in front of uh, the episode. Yeah, you know, when I first heard about Lower Decks, I was like, you know what? I'm not even interested in this at all. But then I saw, like, the preview to it and the interviews yeah. of the cast, and I was like, that looks pretty good. And yeah. then I saw it, and I'm like, well, this is great. And I'm like, I love this show. I know. It's, it's got tons of great stuff in it. So it's like my favorite Star Trek show right now. It's so they talk. I said, you guys... It is so fast and so funny. There's yeah. no, well, you, you do like five hours of, uh, uh, in fact, you, I won't even say, I can't say it. I get well, myself. It's, it's amazing. Actually, the, that's one of the things that, that amazes me about that show is how they're able to pack so much stuff into 20 minutes. Yes. You know? That was my point. Yeah. I didn't quite that eloquently, but yes, that's what, that's exactly the way I said to mark. It's remarkable. Yeah, and it's wild. Yeah, it's wild. Well, I better let you go. So take care. I hope your shoulder Thank feels you, better. And um, I'll look forward to seeing you in Axonar. And then I guess we're going to hear you in Lower Decks. We'll talk. I don't suppose you're going to be in Prodigy. I, I can't e even, I can't even say. Okay. I can't even hint. You can't even wink. I can't. Like because if you just, if I, just, okay, if you turn your head a little bit that way, it might mean something. You don't even have to say what it means. Okay. <laughs> All right. Take care. So, uh-oh, how do we say this in Klingon? Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Long <laughs> Benefit of all beings everywhere. We gotta change.